Okay. All right, we're going to start out with crutches, canes, and walkers. On page 17. Any questions? <laughs> Probably just went over and slept. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Not much came to mind. Okay. Crutches, canes, and walkers. One of the major areas of human functioning is locomotion. And so they do test it. So certain things show up on boards with greater frequency than what you might expect them to. And locomotion is one of those. And so to test that, they test casts, traction, canes, crutches, walkers, things that were really probably not emphasized in your school much, were they? That, that wasn't a major emphasis, I, I doubt. But on boards, it, people will always say like, well, I was surprised at how many things I had about traction or about casts or about things like that. And, and that's because one of the eight areas of human functioning they test is locomotion. So you do have to know some of these things. Plus, they're also really good areas for patient teaching because a lot of boards is teaching. What do you teach? How would you, what's your goal? What's the teaching? Uh, and then it's also risk reduction, you know, as far as reducing risk to skin, risk for immobility problems and that. So let's talk about crutches. The first thing is, is how do you measure crutches? The reason why they want you to know how to measure crutches correctly is for risk reduction so that you don't cause nerve damage. Um, the first thing is the length of the crutch. How do you measure the length of the crutch? It's two to three finger widths below the anterior axillary fold to a point lateral to and slightly in front of the foot. Now what they'll do is they'll say something like, you know, you see an RN or an LPN or an aide measuring a person for crutches. You notice they're doing all of the following. What would you correct? And, and, and you have to pick something where they're doing it wrong. Or they'll say which one shows the right and you have to pick out the correct. The deal is, is they'll often write sets of instructions where you're measuring from the wrong point to the wrong point. For example, they'll say, to get the length of a crutch, you measure from the axilla. You don't measure from the axilla. You measure two to three finger widths below the anterior axillary fold. So they'll give you the wrong upper point. Or they'll say, you measure to the heel. You don't measure to the heel. You measure to the little toe. You don't measure to the little toe. In other words, you don't measure to any landmark on the foot. You measure to a point lateral to and slightly in front of the foot. So if any of the answers say axilla or any landmark on your foot, they are incorrect. They are wrong. Rule them out. So any instructions with a landmark on the foot or say axilla, they're wrong instructions for how long the crutches need to be. Letter B, the next thing you have to measure is the hand grip. The hand grip can be adjusted up and down and what you need to know there is when the hand grips are properly placed, the angle of elbow flexion will be about 30 degrees. So those are the two things that they're all about with crutch measuring. The length and the, hand, the angle of elbow flexion when you put the hand grip properly placed. 
Those are the only two things you need to know about measuring crutches. The next part of it is how to teach crutch gates because you're supposed to be able to educate people on how to walk with crutches. There are four crutch gates, two point, three point, four point, and swing through. Now how do you teach each of them? Two point gate is rather simple. These names are really obvious. You shouldn't forget these names because these names tell you exactly what you're doing with one or two, with one exception maybe. In two point gate, <coughs> pretend my arms are crutches, all right? In two point gate you move a crutch and the opposite foot together followed by the other crutch and the other foot together. And so you kind of walk like this. Two things, two things, two things, two things, two things. So it goes two, 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 two. Well, if you were going two, 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 what would you name the gate? Two point, doesn't it make sense? Because in two point you're moving two things together. What two things? a crutch and the opposite. It's always crutch and opposite. So that's real simple to teach. In three-point gate you're moving two crutches and the bad leg together. Two crutches and the bad leg. So how many things is that? Three. So it goes, if this is my bad leg, it goes three, one, three, one, three, one. So what would you call a crutch gate that goes three, one, three, one, three, one? Three point, seems logical. So what are you moving together in two point? How many are you moving together in two point? How many are you moving together in three point? So how many do you move together in four point? No. Because that would be, what would that look like? That would look like this. Right? And if you could do that, you don't need crutches. So obviously that falls apart. So you move two things together in two point, you move three things together in three point, but in four point you move everything separately. Because how many things do you have? Well you have two legs and two crutches. Two plus two equals four. So how does four, four point go? Well, four point goes like this. You move a crutch, any crutch, just pick a crutch. But once you move that crutch, now you're locked in. Your sequence is now locked in. Because now what must you move? The opposite foot followed by the other crutch followed by the other foot. So one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. That's four point gate. It's very slow, but very stable. We'll be talking about that on the next page because that's exactly the next thing we need to tell you because you do have to know that. Okay, uh, swing through, on the other hand, is for non-weight bearing. For example, amputations where you, you, know, you can't bear weight on a stump. Or whenever they say non-weight bearing. And what swing through is, is you've seen it, I can't illustrate it because I don't really have crutches, but it's where you can't bear weight on this leg, and so you plant the crutches, all right? And then you swing through, you see? And then you just, and you never put this leg down, and you've seen them, they kind of go whoosh, 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 and they just follow those missing leg. And that's exactly what they do, and they just swing it. And it actually can be really fast. Have you seen people go pretty fast with this? They just move, and that leg never touches down, okay? Um, so when do you use swing through? 
non-weight bearing. I did have a student who called me after she took her test and she says, that crush stuff was on there but what you taught me didn't help. Oh, okay. Rather accusatory, but hey, whatever. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, why didn't it help? And she said, well, you were telling us about the different crutch gates, and she said, the one they gave me, nothing you taught us helped. And I said, well, what did they tell you? She said, well, he had an amputation. So I didn't know which crutch gate to use. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean you didn't know? She says, well, you two-point wouldn't work, three-point wouldn't. She says, and, and then swing-throughs for non-weight-bearing. Yeah. And I said, well, amputation, you can't bear. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh -huh. Why do people make those kinds of mistakes on tests? No. They're not thinking. Why are they not thinking? They're anxious. It's not like she and they're not, they're not taking steps to manage that anxiety. Now, I, I will never tell a student, when you take this test, don't be anxious. That's stupid. You can't tell a person not to be anxious because they're going to be anxious as whatever they're going to be. But what you have to teach them is how to what? Manage the anxiety. And she wasn't managing the anxiety. And I was thinking, you know, but if you, if you think about it, could you really do three point? You know, one, two, three. <laughs> you, know, you can't do that with an amputation. You have to. You have to do a swing through. Now, what if they said they had an amputation with a prosthetic device? Could you bear weight? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, <coughs> letter D on the next page, which is what you ask, which is when do you when do they use these? In what situations do they use these? You also have to know that. Now, this is easy. Because there's a little saying we often use, and that's even for even, odd for odd. Even for even, odd for odd. Now, how does that work? Well, let's plug it in. Letter D, number one. Use the even numbered gates, which are what? Two and four, correct? When the weakness is evenly distributed, that's even for even. Meaning use an even numbered gate when you have an even number of legs messed up. Use two point for a mild problem and four point for a severe problem. So generally answering your question, when do you use four point? With severe bilateral weaknesses. When do you use a two point gate? mild bilateral weaknesses. Because if you see, what my point is this, is if they give you a question about what crutch gate will you teach, all you have to do to get it right is ask yourself how many legs are affected. If it's an even number of legs, which would be what? Two. Then pick two or four. Even for even. Okay, D Number two here, use the odd numbered gate, and there's only one odd numbered gate, and that is three, when one leg is odd. That's the odd for odd. So if you say, how many legs are affected? One. Well, what kind of a number is one, even or odd? Odd. odd. So pick the odd numbered gate, which is three. 
But if you have two legs affected, is that an even or an odd number? Even. So pick an even number gate, two or four. Two for a mild, four for a severe. And if they can't bear weight, you go <coughs> swing through. And if they're an amputation, you go swing through. So I'm going to give you some examples, and I want you to tell me which crutch gate you would teach, all righty? Um, and I just want you to write it down. Number one, early stages of rheumatoid arthritis. Early stages of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, left above the knee amputation. First day post-op right knee replacement, partial weight bearing allowed. Right or left? Does, well, left. Did I say left or right? Right total knee replacement, first day post-op, partial weight bearing allowed. Um, advanced, advanced stages of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS. Advanced ALS. Left hip replacement, second day post-op, non-weight bearing. And just write down the crutch gate you're going to teach. Next one, bilateral total knee replacement, bilateral total knee replacement, first day post-op weight bearing allowed, bilateral total knee replacement, first day post-op weight bearing allowed. And last patient, bilateral total knee replacement, three weeks post-op. Okay, so do you have your crutch gates down? Okay, what's it read? What's the first one? Two. Why two? Did I tell you how many legs were affected? No. no, but it was a systemic disease. And what should you assume if it's a systemic disease? Both legs. So that's a, is two an even or odd number? Even. So you would have picked two or four. Why did you pick two? Early. Okay, then what was the next one? Swing through. Then what? Three. Then which one? Everybody's sitting there like, are you just not answering or is everybody getting four? Okay. Then swing through. Then four. Then two. Did you get those? 
Any questions about any of them? Okay, good. Just remember, even for even, odd for odd. All right, stairs, going up and down stairs with crutches, letter E, going up and down stairs. Again, it's going to be patient teaching. Remember the saying, up with the good, down with the bad. Up with the good, down with the bad. In other words, when you go upstairs with crutches, go up with your good. That means lead with your good. So what goes first, crutches or the foot? Foot, so crutches go what? Second, up with the good. Up with the good. See that? However, down with the bad. Down with the bad. See that? Down with the bad. But it actually makes sense. Because could you go up with the bad? Okay, I'm going to put the crutches up first. Okay, now the crutches are up. Okay, now how do I... See, you can't, you can't get up because the crutches are there. And when you come down, would you really lead with your good leg? You know, that would throw, you'd be down a bit faster than you thought. It would just throw you down. So it's always up with the, down with the, and the crutches always move with the bad leg. Canes. Hold the cane on the strong side. People hold canes incorrectly, notoriously. If I have a weak right leg, a weak right leg, in which hand do I hold the crutch? The left. But I advance it with the bad leg. So when you walk with crutches appropriately, if you're walking like this, if this is your bad leg, going like this. And see, when you put your crutch down, you have a nice wide base of support, which keeps you upright. When people do it wrong, they hold the cane on the bad side. And what they do is, here's the bad leg, here's the cane, and they go like this. When they go like that, it's a point. So they have to shift their weight over that base of support. And then they rock back. And they go like this. And if you see anybody doing that, what do you know? They have the cane where? Wrong hand, they need to switch it over and walk correctly. So whenever you see people walking that way, they're wrong. Okay? Even if they are a television doctor. Um, <laughs> okay, um, I will correct people in the mall. <laughs> I've been known to do that. That's why my daughters will never walk with me when we go anywhere. <laughs> I embarrass them. But I'll go up to somebody and say, hmm, interesting, how have you been taught to use that cane? Because I see that you're actually using it incorrectly. <laughs> sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. <laughs> but nurses, you know, once you're a nurse, it corrupts you, doesn't it? 
you're, you're different now that you're a nurse. Uh, one of the things that my daughters also, they won't walk with me in a hotel hallway. Because what do I do when I go down a hotel hallway? Because you do it too. You go like this. You're walking down a hotel hallway and this is you. <laughs> what are you doing? You're looking in rooms, aren't you? Because as a nurse, you cannot go down a hallway without looking through rooms, correct? So I'm looking in all these open doors like this, and my daughters are going, Dad, stop looking in the room. Well, my response is, if they didn't want me looking in the room, they should have closed the door. You know, but I mean, I just, you can't, can you do it? Can you walk by an open door without looking in? I mean, you may have been able to before you were a nurse, but you can't do it now that you're a nurse. It's, it's unavoidable. Try to, try to walk down a hallway next time in a hotel and say, I will not look in any empty rooms. Ah, you'll go nuts. It'll drive you crazy. Okay. Um, walkers. Pick them up, set them down, walk to them. Pick them up, set them down, walk to them. In other words, it's slow. Yeah, it's slow. No big deal. They pick it up, they set it down, they walk to it. They're supposed to pick it up, set it down, walk to it. Pick it up, set it down. What do they do? They go like this and then they go. <laughs> right? They don't do the right. They don't do it right. Okay, and number two, if they must tie their belongings to the walker, have them tie it to the sides, not the front. Why? Tipping over. What's that? I didn't hear you. Can you repeat that? Okay. Um, if they must tie their belongings to the walker, have them tie belongings to the side of the walker, not to the front of the walker. So even though it is done by 99% of everybody you see, boards does not like stuff tied onto the fronts of walkers. Alrighty? And boards doesn't even like wheels on walkers or tennis balls on walkers. You see, even though it's done. Any questions about crutches, canes, and walkers? Just a little refresher, because I figured that if you got a question about that and you hadn't had it in a long time, it might throw you, when it's very simple and very easy to master. All right, let's totally switch gears on page 19 and talk about delusions, hallucinations, and illusions. In other words, some psych. Let's talk psych. Do you see where your first point, letter A, says neurosis versus psychosis? I want you to cross off the word neurosis, and I want you to put non-psychotic so that the statement now says non-psychotic versus psychosis. Because this is, this is probably one of the most important points I could talk to you about in psych. Because this is probably the most common reason why people with whom I work miss psych questions. Because right out of the gate, they turned left instead of turning right. They went the wrong way out of the gate. And the reason why they go the wrong way out of the gate on a psych question is the very first thing you have to do to get a psych question correct is decide, is my patient <coughs> non-psychotic or psychotic? That's the first thing you must do in a psych question. You must decide, am I dealing with a psychotic 
or a non-psychotic. Why does that matter? How many think that might be an important point? Exactly. It's huge. It, it'll determine treatment. It'll determine goals. It'll determine prognosis. It'll determine medication. It will determine length of stay. It will determine legalities. It will determine everything. So if you don't even know if you're working with a psychotic versus a non-psychotic, how in the world do you expect to get the question correct? And you won't. You may guess right once in a while, but over the long haul, you're going to do horrible. So one of the, the, the very first thing you must do, and I want you to start doing it, whenever you take a psych question, what's the first question you'll ask yourself? Is the patient psychotic or non-psychotic? Now let's talk about those differences. Number one, a non-psychotic person, do you see wherever you see the word neurotic, just replace it with non-psychotic? A non-psychotic person has insight and is reality-based. A non-psychotic person, yes, they're emotionally ill. Yes, they have emotional distress. Yes, they have mental and behavioral disorder. But they are not psychotic. They have insight. Insight means they know what's wrong with them. They know they have a problem. They know what the problem is. They know how it's messing up their life. And they are reality-based, meaning what they're believing, see and hear and smell and feel and taste in, is what you believe and hear and see and smell and feel and taste. So these people are mentally distressed and emotionally distressed, but they're not psychotic. So how do you treat these people? What kinds of answers do you go and select? Now, if you've been doing psych questions right, you know what I'm talking about. So what do you pick? What kind of answers do you pick? In that case. What techniques do you use in that case? You guys never made this differentiation when you take psych tests? What was that? The question is, is it's a, the first thing you have to do when you get a psych question is decide if your patient is a psychotic or a non-psychotic. And if you find out, if you say, oh, this is a non-psychotic patient, then what approaches, what kinds of answers, what kinds of techniques, what kinds of approaches do you look for as being the right answer for this non-psychotic, mentally disturbed patient. Good therapeutic communication. What do I mean by that? Good therapeutic communication. Why? Because isn't that what you do for everybody? Yeah. Do you do that for med-surg patients? Yes. Do you use good therapeutic communication skills with med-surg patients? Yes. Do you use good therapeutic communication skills with pediatric clients? Yes. Do you use it with OB clients? Yes. Community health clients? So the point is this. If a person is mentally disturbed, mentally distressed, emotionally disordered, but they are non-psychotic, the right answer is the right answer that would be right for everybody and anybody that just displays really good communication skills. Like, tell me more about what you're experiencing right now. Or that must be very difficult. Or 
all that has happened has been fairly overwhelming for you, or how are you feeling right now, or you know, those kinds of things. Tell me more about what do you mean by, can you explain to me more fully about. See, those are answers. Have you ever had, have you ever had those questions where they give you a med search patient and ask you what would you say, and they're just testing reflection, clarification, amplification, uh, restatement. Remember those therapeutic tech, therapeutic communication skills you learned in basic nursing that you use with everybody? Well, that's what you want to do with a non-psychotic. There's nothing special that you're supposed to do or know differently with a non-psychotic than any med surge, peds, or OB patient. So if they say to you, Alice is depressed, and she says, I hate this depression, it's ruining my life. I have absolutely no energy to do anything. Now, is she psychotic or non-psychotic? How did you know she was non-psychotic? She recognized a problem. She had insight. So that makes her... But she is depressed. So what would you say? Well, you wouldn't use any real fancy sick, sick psych strategies. You would just say to her, well, how, how, how are you feeling right now? Or what is, what is currently causing distress for you? Or how, how, how much energy do you have today? Do you have enough energy? You know what I mean? That you just, whatever you would ask anybody else, just good communication skills. So how hard of a question is a psych question for a patient with a psych problem who is non-psychotic? Is it hard or easy? easy. It's easy because you're just going to use good general therapeutic communication. And there's nothing special you were supposed to have known about it. Okay, now, however, let's talk about the next group, the psychotics. Letter B, or number two, the psychotic person has no insight and is not reality-based. In other words, they don't know they're sick. They think everybody else has the problem, not them. Have you ever met these people? What do they say about themselves? I'm not sick. What are they, who do they blame? Everybody's got, you know, it's the doctor, it's the nurses, it's my neighbors, it's my wife. So you have to understand that psychotics don't think they're sick. And if they say they're sick, because I've heard psychotics say, I'm a schizophrenic, undifferentiated type. And they'll even quote the ICDA code for insurance purposes. And but yet then they say that the Martians are causing all their problems in life. Well, that's not insight. Because insight means you know you're sick and you know how it's messing up your life. Well, they may be able to state the disease, but that doesn't mean they have insight. Do, do you hear that? How many have, have heard psychotics tell you that they've actually told you their diagnosis, but they have no insight? Okay. Now these people are treated very differently because what does not work with these people? Good therapeutic communication skills. Because that assumes that people are rational, reality-based, and know they have a problem. Well, these people don't have any of that. So what you've got to memorize is unique, specific strategies, which I will teach you on the next page. But for right now, let's move into symptoms.
Delusions, hallucinations, and illusions are psychotic symptoms. Only psychotic people get these. Non-psychotics do not have delusions. Non-psychotics do not have hallucinations. And non-psychotics do not have illusions. So the minute your patient has a delusion, they have crossed the line and they are now in the camp of psychotic. So remember uh, Alice that it was depressed that I talked about a couple minutes ago? If they said, Alice is depressed, she says, I can't stand this depression, it's ruining my life, what symptoms would you expect? You got the question, what symptoms would you expect in this lady? Select all that apply. Okay, would you pick decreased energy level? Yes. Um, psychomotor retardation, meaning everything kind of slows down. Um, delusions of, of uh, persecution. No. no, that would be totally out the window. Why? Because she is non-psychotic, and non-psychotics don't have delusions, hallucinations, and illusions. So you could automatically rule that out. Now, if they are psychotic, you rule those in, because they do have those. So let's talk about these psychotic symptoms in depth, because I'm going to teach you what they are and then how to treat them. The first psychotic symptom is a delusion. A delusion is a false, fixed, F-I-X-E-D, fixed, which means they don't change it. A false, fixed idea or belief. There is no sensory component. With a delusion, you're not hearing, feeling, tasting, seeing, smelling, anything. It's all up here. You're thinking it. You're not feeling it. You're not sensing it at all. It's just a thought. Now, there are three types of delusions. The first is a paranoid delusion, which is a false, fixed belief that people are out to harm you. Like the police are out to kill me, the mafia is out to kill me, my wife is having me committed so she can run off with the psychiatrist, the kids are lying about me so they can get my house, the neighbors are shining lasers on me to hurt me, that kind of stuff. Grandiose delusion is a false fixed belief that you are superior. So this is where you think you're Christ or Muhammad or Genghis Khan or, you know, whomever. Or you generically think that you're the world's smartest person. You're the world's greatest person. The, the uh, future of the universe hinges on you. You know, those are all grandiose thoughts. The third type of delusion is a somatic, which is a false fixed belief about bodies, about a body part, about your body. In other words, I have x-ray vision. I can melt stone with my eyes. Um, my brain is a Martian superconducting proton accelerator. Um, there are worms inside my arm. My body is hollow. Uh, you're pregnant, you're 83, and you're male. You know, those are delusions, somatic delusions. Now, hallucinations. How are hallucinations different? A hallucination is a false, fixed sensory experience. You see, with a delusion, there was no sensation going on. With hallucination, it's purely sensory. You see, hear, feel, taste, thinks. I mean, hear, feel, taste, smell, all those things. 
So how many senses do we have? We have five, so how many types of hallucinations? Five, one for each sense. The most common hallucination is letter A, a auditory, an auditory, A-U-D-I-T-O-R-Y, auditory hallucination, where you hear things, and primarily they are voices telling you to hurt yourself. So the most common hallucination is an auditory hallucination, and the most common auditory hallucination is voices telling you to harm yourself. That is by far and away the most common hallucination reported. The next most common hallucination is a visual, which is seeing things that are not there. The third most common is tactile, T-A-C-T-I-L-E, which is feeling things that are not there. And the last two are gustatory, G-U-S, and then the word tat, T-A-T, and then O-R-Y, gustatory, which is smelling or tasting, I'm sorry, tasting things that are not there. And the last one is olfactory, O-L and then the word factory, which is smelling things that are not real. So you have auditory, visual, tactile, gustatory, olfactory. The first three are the most common in that order. The most common is auditory, second most common is visual, third most common is tactile. The last two, gustatory and olfactory, are relatively rare, and you don't usually hear of them <coughs> much. Now let's turn the page and talk about an illusion. What is an illusion? Well, an illusion is a misinterpretation of reality, a misinterpretation of reality. You're misinterpreting what's going on. It is a sensory experience. Sensory. Well, that's just great. Because now what two are we going to confuse? Because they're both sensories. Hallucinations are sensory, right? And illusions are sensory. Well, that's bad, because now how are you going to tell them apart? And that's what that next part says. Number two, differentiation between illusions and hallucinations. In other words, how do you tell the difference between a hallucination and an illusion? Well, here's how you tell the difference. With illusions, there is a referent in reality. With an illusion, there is a referent in reality. Now let's talk about what that means. A referent, R-E-F-E-R-E-N-T, R-E-F-E-R-E-N-T, referent. What a referent is, is something to which a person refers when they say something. So, with an illusion, there is a referent. There's actually something there. They just misinterpret what it is. With a hallucination, there is absolutely nothing there. So it's probably best understood by illustration. If a client says, listen, I hear demon voices. Listen, I hear demon voices. Of what is that an example? That is a hallucination. Why? 
It was sensory, and there was nothing there. What about this example? A client overhears nurses and doctors laughing and talking at the nurse's station and says, listen, I hear demon voices. Now they said the exact same thing. Of what is that an example? Why is that an illusion? It was the same thing. They said the exact same thing. The question bothered to tell you that there was actually real people talking, making real sounds that they misinterpreted. In that case, it's an illusion. What's this? During your interview, a client stares at the wall and says, look, I see a bomb. They stare at the wall and say, look, I see a bomb. B-O-M-B. Hallucination or illusion. Hallucination. What about this? During your interview, the client looks at the fire extinguisher on the wall and says, look, I see a bomb. What's that? That's an illusion. Why? Was there something there? Was there a referent? Was there something in reality to which they referred? Yes, that was the fire extinguisher. So, is it really going to be hard to spot an illusion? <coughs> on the test. Why is it going to be easy? Because they're going to add a whole bunch of words, a whole big sentence telling you there was actually something there. And when you, when you see all that there, you go, oh, that's an illusion. Okay. So it's sort of like an illusion is a hallucination with a referent. Basically. Now the bigger question is letter E. How do you deal with these psychotic symptoms in a psychotic patient. When dealing with a patient experiencing psychotic symptoms such as delusions, hallucinations, and illusions, the first thing you, the nurse, must ask yourself is, what is their problem? In other words, what kind of psychosis do they have? I hope you guys were taught that there are basically three types of psychosis. Were you taught that? Because if you weren't, I don't understand how you're supposed to answer questions. Because these three different types are huge differences. The first type of psychosis is what they call a functional psychosis. Now, you don't have to know the names of all of these. You just have to know there are three types and what they mean. The first type of psychotic is a functional psychotic. And what do you suppose that means? Functional. They can function in everyday life. Can they have a family? Yes. A marriage? Yes. A relationship? Yes. A job? They can do all that and live alone, take care of themselves, pay their bills, pay their taxes. They can function. But they are what? Psychotic. <laughs> they can function, but they're psychotic. Now, there are four diseases that make up 90% of this category. And they are what I call the schizo schizo major manics. The schizo-schizo-majormanics. Now, what are those? Schizo for schizophrenia. The second schizo is schizoaffective disorder. I hope you've heard of that. The third one is major depression. Major depression, not depression. You understand? Depression is not psychotic. Major depression is psychotic. So it has to have major there. And then manic, 
people that are acutely manic. So are bipolars functional? Yes. But are they always psychotic? No, they're only psychotic in what phase? The manic phase. The rest of their life, they're... In fact, you guys could be bipolars and I wouldn't even know it. You could all be bipolars for all I know. So what are the four functional psychoses? Schizo, schizo, major, manic. Alright, now the next psychotic is the psychosis of dementia. Dementia. Now what's these people's problem? Why are they, why are they psychotic? Why do they not know reality and uh, have no insight? Why do dementia clients not know reality and why are they not having insight? Why do they lack insight? What's that? Well, why is the memory messed up? Thought I heard it. Brain damage. Actual damage to the brain. The brain is actually damaged. Now, in the functional, is the brain damaged? No. It's just the chemicals are out of balance and they don't really have it, they haven't learned adaptive behaviors well. But in this case with the dementia, there's actual brain damage. And that's why they're psychotic, the brain damage. These would be people like Alzheimer's. Do you ever know anybody that after a stroke, they're kind of psychotic after a stroke due to the damage? That would be this. Have you heard of organic brain syndrome? That would fall under this category. Anything that says senile or dementia falls in this category. And lastly, number three, <coughs> the third type of psychotic is psychotic delirium. Delirium, D-E-L-I-R-I-U-M, D-E-L-I-R-I-U-M, delirium. And we'll talk about these people. But here's the deal. What's the first thing you must do to get a psych question correct? Psychotic or non-psychotic. If you decide they're non, they're non-psychotic, what answers do you pick? The best good therapeutic communication response. That would be true for anybody. If you decide that they are psychotic, then what step must you take? Decide which of the three categories that person falls in. Are they functional? Are they dementia? Are they delirious? Because you're going to use different approaches for each of these. Because not all psychotics are the same. So let me illustrate how you're going to answer questions differently. Letter F, let's talk about the functional psychotic. Does this person have brain damage? No. no. So number one, this patient has the potential to learn reality. Why can they learn reality? Because they don't have any damage. They can learn it. 
They might need some meds to balance some chemicals, and then you might need to set some structure, but they can learn it. They can improve. Well then how, if they can learn it, what's your role as a nurse? If they can learn reality, what is your role as a nurse? Teach reality. So how do you teach reality? You use the four-step process that's here. This four-step process is the way we teach reality to a functional. First step, acknowledge feeling. Second step, present reality. Third step, set a limit. Fourth step, enforce the limit. Now, that isn't good enough for me just to tell you that. I need to illustrate to you how that would look in a question. Because Boards doesn't say, what's the first thing you do? A, acknowledge feeling. They don't say that. They say, what's the first thing you'll say? And they'll give you four quotes. And you're supposed to pick out the one that acknowledges the feeling or the one that presents reality or the one that sets a limit. So what do answers look like that acknowledge feeling? If you said, oh, I've got to look for an answer that acknowledges their feeling, what would it look like? How would you spot it? What would it say? Usually the word feel is in the, is in the answer, yes. So you'd say, or you could even specify a feeling, couldn't you? If you don't say the word feel, usually there's a specification of a feeling. For example, you'd say, I see you're angry. Or, you seem upset. Or, that must be distressing. Or, that's so sad. <coughs> or, all that has happened has been so devastating. Or, Tell me more about how you're feeling right now. See, all of those go to what? Yeah. Feeling. And that's the first thing you do. How many have noticed that in psych, if you're between a couple of answers and one of them is talking about feeling, if you pick it, you're usually more right than wrong. Have you noticed that? Because what are you doing? Acknowledging their feeling, which is the very first thing you should always do with a functional. Secondly, you present reality. Well, how does presenting reality look like? Well, it, it has different forms. One of the classic forms of presenting reality says, I know that blank is real to you, but I do not blank. Do you see what I'm saying? I know that you see that demon, but I do not see a demon. Do you see what I'm saying? I know you, I understand those voices are real to you, but I do not hear any voices. Do, do you see what I'm saying? I understand that you think that the mafia is out to kill you, but re in reality, no one is going to harm you. Do you see that? That's one format. The other format of presenting reality is just to tell them what is real. I am a nurse, this is a hospital, and this is your breakfast. Do you see what I'm saying? So you can either tell them what actually reality is, or you can just say, I know that's real to you, but I do not. Both of those are acceptable formats for presenting reality. Either one is good, but it's not the first thing you do. It's the second thing you do. Setting a limit, 
what setting a limit looks like is you, when you set a limit, the answer will say something like, that topic is off limits in our conversation. Or when we talk together, that is not, we are not going to address that problem. Or we're not going to talk about that. And sometimes it can go all the way and be as extreme as stop talking about. That would be all right to tell them to stop talking about those aliens. Stop talking about the voices. And you can be that strong. Or you can be the strong enough to say, we're not going to talk about those voices. You see, you can be that directive and that strong. And then enforcing a limit usually takes the format of saying something like, I see you're too ill to stay reality-based, so our conversation is over. That's enforcing the limit. Enforcing the limit is ending the conversation. Enforcing the limit is not taking away a privilege. You see, that's punishing. Does everybody understand the difference between enforcing a limit and punishing them? What are you doing when you punish somebody? What actions do you take to punish? What would be bad answers that would be construed as punishing? Because you've told them to stop talking about the voices, right? And they keep talking about the voices. They violate the limit. So how are you going to, what would be a bad way to enforce it? Such as? Yeah, you can know, since you can't, since you can't, follow the rules, you lose your telephone privileges. You lose your refrigerator privileges. You're going to be restricted to your room. No, that's not enforcing the limit. That's punishing them. The only enforcement is ending the conversation. That's the enforcement. Why is that appropriate? Why is it good to end a conversation with them when they are not reality based and won't stay reality based. You're not going to accomplish anything and by continuing to talk what are you reinforcing? The non-reality. Okay. So how does it go? Well, let's talk about this. You have a patient who says to you and he's schizophrenic. Does that matter? Schizophrenic. Why does that matter? It throws him in what category? Functional and you know to do the four-step functional process. He says, schizophrenic says to you, I'm going to kill y'all. You're all going to be dead by morning. I'm going to slit your throats and I'm starting with you. Okay? Rather paranoid, violent, delusional thinking. What's the first thing you say to him? What's that? Right. You could say that I understand you're upset, or you could say, I see you're angry. I wouldn't say, how do you feel right now? Because I think I know. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes they give you enough data in the question to kind of know what they're feeling like. Okay, so I see you are upset. Then what do you do? What did I tell you to do next? Okay, but they're not going to say present reality. What, give me a quote. In this case, you'd say, I see you are upset. But he didn't talk about bugs. Okay. That's the only problem. That is presenting reality. But he didn't say that. He said he was going to kill us all. 
We're all be dead, gonna be dead by morning. He's gonna slit our throats and he's gonna start with me. Okay, and I would. St I think that's a, that's a great answer. I think we could go better with talking about it more positively than negatively. Rather than saying you're not going to kill anybody, I would say we're all going to be kept safe. So I would present the reality and always try to. If you're between two things, sometimes Derek, it, Derek, it comes down to. One is stated positively and one is stated negatively, and you always want to, yeah, rather than saying you can't have, you're on a fluid, you're only allowed to have 10 cc's at breakfast time, you're, you say, you can have 10 cc's at breakfast. You know what I mean? They always like you to state it positively. Like with diets, it's better to emphasize what they can have than what they cannot have. With mobility, it's better to tell them what they can do. rather. And so in every way, if you're between two answers, one is positive, one is negative, go with the positive. Does that make sense? Okay, in this case, uh, Derek said what? Uh, no, no. Killing us is, you know, murder. Killing is inappropriate and not going to happen in this situation. Versus, I see you are upset, but everybody is going to be kept safe while we're here. This is the same. You see, it's the same thing, only stated more positively. It's presenting the reality of what's going to happen. No one is going to get killed, right? Okay, then what do you say? We're not going to talk about that kind of stuff. We're just, that, those kinds of ideas, although they are real to you, are off limits in our conversation. So then he keeps talking about it. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to slit your throat. I've got this knife. I'm going to shank you. What do they what do they say? What do you then say? I see you're too ill to have a reality-based conversation, so our conversation is over. And in reality, in real life when I work psych, I then offer them a tranquilizer. <laughs> I say, and we have some medication that can help you control those things. Would you like some? You know, and that kind of thing. A lot of times they do. And I always like to say that because I like to say, I see you're too ill. I love to say that because what's it telling them about their experience? That that is a symptom of their illness, illness and they're gaining. I'm hoping to teach them that what it's not them. It's the Ill, it's their illness that's and, and they need to recognize what's ill me and what's healthy me. And so I always love to say, I know that's a symptom of your illness, but I see no, I see you're too ill to have a reality-based conversation. So we're done now. But though I, ha I always like to say, but we have medication to help you with those symptoms. Now, again, what am I reinforcing? That's a symptom and that, that this is a symptom of your illness. And it's controllable. And we have meds for it. So comply with it. Do you know what I mean? Because non-compliance is the number one reason why psych patients are readmitted to facilities. Correct? So I always find that. And then I say, and they say, well, what medication? Well, like Xanax. Or what? Well, I don't like, okay, well, you have this. Okay, well, I'll have some of that, I guess. And it works like about one-third of the time. And you say one third of the time isn't very good. Oh, it's a lot. I mean, that's pretty good for a psych hospital. One third compliance rate. So then they, they do well. Okay. So that's a good way to go. Do you get the? Do you understand the process? Acknowledge feeling, present reality, set a limit, enforce. <coughs> However, if they have psychosis of dementia, who are these people? Dementias. Seniles, Alzheimer's, brain injuries, organic brain syndromes, post strokes. 
Number one says this patient has a brain problem, structural brain problem, and cannot learn reality. They cannot learn reality. Do you think that makes any difference? Yes. What about the functional? What's the high, what's the positive point about functional? They can learn reality. What's the best for a dementia? They can't learn it. Do you think that difference is minor or major? major? That's a major difference. Do you see why you have to differentiate which of the three categories your psychotic falls into? Because it makes a huge difference in how you deal with it. Well, how do you deal with a dementia, a psychotic dementia, a person who has brain damage and they can't learn reality? Well, number one, you do two steps. The first step is you acknowledge their feeling and the second step is you redirect them. You redirect them. So what am I telling you you don't do? Present reality. Why is presenting reality for a dementia not appropriate? They can't learn it. And you keep trying to teach something that they can't learn. It's ridiculous. It's going to frustrate them, anger them, discourage you. You can't. They can't learn it. It's impossible. So don't try. So what do you do? You redirect them. And redirect means to channel them from something they cannot do to something that they can do. Why do you not set limits on their bizarre communication? It's just plain mean, isn't it? That's just mean. Now, I do want to caution you guys. Here's where a lot of people go wrong and they get confused and there shouldn't be any cause for confusion, if you understand this. With your dementias, like your Alzheimer's and your senile, when you work with them on the unit, what do they tend to get all the time? What, what, what's a problem they always have? You ever worked with elderly dementias? What's a problem they constantly have every day related to that they forget? Where they are, where their room is, what day it is. Okay? Now, that is not psychosis. At that point, they are not psychotic. They're just forgetting. Now, when they're having delusions, hallucinations, and illusions, what are they at that point? Psychotic. Okay, now, here's the thing. I told you what technique is not appropriate for a dementia client when they're experiencing psychotic symptoms. What is not appropriate? Presenting reality. Don't confuse that with reality orientation. What is reality orientation? What does that mean when you see the phrase reality orientation? Tell them person, place, and time. Is that appropriate with dementias? Yes. yes. Reality orientation is always appropriate with dementias. Is presenting reality appropriate with dementias? No. Do you see the problem with our language that confuses people? Presenting reality versus reality orientation. Two totally different things. Can you do reality orientation with a dementia? Yes. yes, because you're just dealing with loss of memory. Can you do real presentation of reality to dementia patients? No. no. Can you keep that straight? 
Because a lot of people are going to confuse that, and I don't want you to confuse it. Let me illustrate my point here. You have a patient with Alzheimer's. Did that matter? In the question, did that phrase matter? Yes. Why? It threw them in the dementia category. We knew they were not we knew they were psychotic now, and it threw them in the dementia category. So you've got a patient with Alzheimer's. She's in the waiting room, the lobby of the nursing home. She's all dressed up. It's Sunday. You say to her, Mrs. Smith, you're all dressed up. She says, yes, my husband's picking me up. We're going to go to church. Okay. Um, problem? Husband has been dead for 10 years. So she has a what? She thinks her husband is alive, but he's been dead. So she has a what? True or false? False. Fixed. Belief. So she has a what? Delusion. So she is delusional. So at this point, she is what? Psychotic. What do you say to her? So what would be, what would be the first thing you'd say to her? My husband's coming to pick me up. We're going to church. What does it say to do? Okay. It says to acknowledge feeling. Okay. In this case, what would that look like? What's that? There's no feeling there, though. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, are you? I would say, that sounds exciting or that, so that sounds like a, 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 an exciting thing to do or that sounds fun or that sounds interesting or you know you know I mean that don't don't always ask see a lot of times on when these questions they tell you stuff so that you are supposed to recognize the feeling so don't always ask what are you are you just say I see you are happy I see you are sad you know what if it fits those are, those are much better answers. Do you see what I'm saying? Because if you say, how are you feeling? They say, what do I think I'm feeling? You know what I mean? But if you say, I see, you're acknowledging it. Do you understand what, what is, what's the difference between exploring feeling and acknowledging feeling? What is the difference? Or is there no difference? There's a difference. Okay, what does explore feeling mean? Digging, trying to find out what it is. Acknowledge means you already know. You're just acknowledging with them that you see that that's what they are. And that's what we're talking about here. Got it? Okay, then what would you say? She says she's going to church, husband driving. I see, that sounds like an exciting thing to do. Yeah, and the, she said, why don't we go have some breakfast while we're waiting? Now, that's redirection, but I don't know if it's the best one because she would say, but if I go to breakfast, I'll miss him. He won't, he'll miss me. Did you say what I'm saying? And so I, I think it's good, but I think that you could probably say something like, well, why don't we sit down here and, and talk about what's going to happen at church today. Do you see what I'm saying? So while we wait, so she sits down and then you start saying, well, where, what church do you go, do you go to? Who's your pastor? Um, who's your priest? What do you like about the service? Do you have friends there? Does your family go there? What are you doing now? That's all what? Reinforcement of intact 
memory. And isn't that good with dementia? And pretty soon you start getting her turned from church to family. You see, and then you say, do you have any grandkids? And then you get talking about the grandkids. And then you say, do you have any pictures? Right? And they say, yeah, could I see the pictures? Well, I don't have them with me. Well, where are they? In my room. Could you show me? Okay, now she's leading you back to the room to show the picture. She's long forgotten about church and husband, and you're not having a fight. Do you see how you do it? You kind of just redirect them into things. So that's, that's the way you go. What would be the wrong answer to say to her? I, that sounds exciting. But he died but 10 years ago. But your husband's been dead. That's called presenting... Reality, and that's appropriate for a schizo, schizo, major manic, but it stinks for a dementia. Do you see where one answer, the best answer for one, is the worst answer for the other? That's why you've got to know which one you're dealing with, or you're not going to know what to answer. Are you seeing this? Okay, let's talk about the third kind of de- de- psychotic, and that's the psychotic delirium. Description of this psychotic delirium. This is a temporary, sudden, dramatic, secondary loss of reality. And it's usually due to some chemical imbalance in the body. So it's temporary, it's sudden, it's dramatic, Uh, It's episodic, it's uh, secondary, and it's usually due to some chemical imbalance in the body. Now, how is that different than functional? It's temporary. temporary. What else is different about than this than functional? It's sudden. How is this different than dementia? It's temporary, it's sudden, it's secondary, you see? So it's, it's different. Now who are these people? These would be people that are crazy for the short term because of something else causing them to be crazy. For example, have you ever seen anybody go crazy or psychotic because they're on a particular drug? They have a drug reaction, and it makes them lose touch with reality. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. yeah. Um, Tagamet will do it as obvious as, as innocuous as Tagamet could do that. Um, one another area is people that are high on uppers. You know, intoxicated on uppers, they'll be this way, or withdrawing from downers will be this way. So delirium tremens would be this. Cocaine overdose methamphetamine overdose. Have you ever, what are some other chemical situations where you've seen people act crazy? It's temporary, it's due to some other imbalance in their body. What's that? Post-op psychosis, it's due to withdrawing from a downer. Because what's an anesthetic agent? A downer, what are the pain meds? Downers, so as you withdraw from the downers, everything goes up and you have this, particularly in the elderly. If you have an elderly patient who's had anesthesia and a PCA pump, the third post-op day into that fourth post-op day, they can go wacky crazy for about 48 hours. Just plan on it. 
And then they'll come right out of it. But they will be loony as a tune. So don't start zapping them full of tranquilizers or you'll confuse them and they'll end up in a nursing home when they would have come out of it in 48 hours and gone home. Who else? Post-op's classic. What else? Yeah, ICU psychosis can do it with the sensory deprivation can cause it. What else? A UTI, an occult hidden urinary tract infection in the elderly. Classic. Any occult infection, but the UTIs in the elderly are the major ones. Have you heard of thyroid storm? That's another one. Have you heard of adrenal crisis? It's another one. <clears throat> so those are your... Uh, I, I even think roid rage, <laughs> to some extent, could be classified something like that if they're actually seeing, hearing hallucinating and you know if they're that bad they can be that well what's the good news for these people it's temporary so really what's the focus of managing these people removing the underlying cause and keep them safe so what is the two steps acknowledge what yeah. feeling and then reassure Reassure. Of what two things are you reassuring them? That it's temporary, it will go away, and they will be kept safe. safe. So reassure them of safety and that it will go away. Why don't you present reality? They're not gonna get they're not gonna get it. Why do you not redirect them? Because it's not going to work. It's, it just reassure them, reassure them. Let me give you an example with all three. Functional, dementia, delirium. And show you how the answer changes. Because one of the things they do on boards is they change the type of psychosis and they look to see if you change your answer when they change the type of psychosis? Or do you always go with present reality, present reality, present reality, no matter who you're with, which is the wrong way to go? Okay, here we go. You have a patient with schizoaffective disorder who points to two people talking at a table across the room. Got the picture? Schizoaffective, they're pointing to two people talking at a table across the room. And they say, those people are plotting to kill me. What would you say? Well, what's the most important word in that whole question? Schizoaffective. Why is schizoaffective the most important word? Because it throws them in the category of functional psychotic. So what's the first thing you say to that person in that context? Those two people over there, they're plotting to kill me. I see you are frightened or scared, or that must be frightening. Then what would you say? Okay, but they don't say reality. You got it. You got to know what it's going to look like. What is it going to say? Those people are not plotting to kill you. We're all safe. That's called presenting reality. Then what do you say to that person? Furthermore, we're not going to discuss this. And if they keep doing it, what do you say? They keep talking about the two people over there. 
I see you're too ill to have a conversation, so we're finished. I'll meet with you in a half an hour, and then maybe you can have a reality-based conversation. Those are all appropriate. Do you see the four steps? Okay, let me give you another question. No, not necessarily. No, not necessarily. But that's not the, that is not the priority at that point in time. The priority is presenting the reality, setting the limit. Now, if they're escalating and they're starting to do, but there was no escalation in that question. Um, what about this? You have a patient with Alzheimer's disease who during your conversation points to pe two people sitting at a table and says, you see those people, they're plotting to kill me. What's the most important word in that question? Alzheimer's. Why Alzheimer's? It puts them in what category? Dementia. So now you know you're going to acknowledge feeling and redirect. So how would we then do it? What would be the answers? That's it. You seem scared. That must be frightening. Now what? Redirect. That's actually changing the subject. And redirection is not changing the subject. Redirection is going with what they're talking about, but getting it achieved in a right way. Why don't we go somewhere you feel safer? Exactly. That, see, that would be better than, they will have both of those there. What was your answer? A? Why don't we go somewhere you feel safer? Yeah, let's go. I, we don't like why. Okay. Let's go somewhere where, we can, where you can feel safe. Versus, what did you say? Let's go eat lunch. Let's go eat lunch. Why would A be better than B? It, it, it's more to, A is more relevant to what they're feeling and what they're talking. B says, B kind of, it kind of ignores it, but it's, it's better than presenting reality. Do you see what I'm saying? And that's why they would put A with B because B is a good answer, but A is better. Do you understand that? Okay, um, what about this question? A client with delirium tremens says to you, you see those two people over there at the table? They're plotting to kill me. What's the most important word in that question? Delirium. Delirium tremens. So that makes them delirious. So what do you say? I see you're scared. And don't say I promise. Well just say you are safe. Just say, you are safe and that will go, that's, that feeling will go away when you get better. Do you see that? You are safe. That's a symptom of your illness. It'll go away when you get better. Now, could you say to the first person who had the schizoaffective, would it be okay to say, I see you're frightened, I'll keep you safe, and that will go away when you get better? No, because no, they didn't learn anything, right? And you can't say it'll go away when you get better to an Alzheimer because it's permanent. So do you see where the good answer for one is a bad answer for the other? How many of you in your psych questions have up to this point basically treated all psychotics the same? Do you understand now there are three varieties and the answers are different? Have you ever had this experience in taking psych questions? Because a lot of people do. Like for example, you'll get a question that says the patient is hallucinating what are you going to do? And you go, oh, I'm going to present reality. So you pick present reality. You go back to the rationale and it says, no, you should redirect the patient. And you go, oh, hmm, that's interesting. 
So then you take some more psych questions and about 30 questions later you get another question about hallucinations, right? And they say, what are you going to do about this hallucination? And you go, oh, I know. It's what? Redirect, because that's what it was the last time. So you pick redirect, you go back to the answers, and they say, no, you should reassure the patient. And you go, what? I wish you'd make up your mind. Last time you said redirect, this time you're saying reassure him. So you take some more psych questions, and about 30 questions later, you get another question about hallucinations. And it says, what are you going to do about this hallucination? And you go, well, it's either redirect or reassure. I don't know which one. They keep changing it. I don't understand this. And then you go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, after 20 minutes, you finally just put, pick one. And you say, well, I'm picking reassure because that's what it was the last time. You go back to the rationale. What does it say? No, you should present reality. Whereupon you yell at the computer screen and say, that's what I said the first time. And you said I was wrong. What's going on here? Why do they always keep changing the answer in psych? Have you ever felt that in a psych question? Well, why do they keep changing the answer in psych? Because they're changing the patient. And when they change the patient, you change your answer. That first one that said redirect, what was probably the patient's problem? Redirect, what was probably the problem? Dementia. The second one, which was reassure, was probably a what? Delirium. The third one, which was reality, was probably a functional, and you completely missed the point, and you're, under, you're trying to figure out what's the pattern, what's the pattern, that's the pattern. Does it make sense to you? Yeah. Do you think you can see, pat do you understand how you're going to see the pattern now? <coughs> Question. Personality disorders are not um, considered psychoses. They're considered to be access to baseline factors that come along with, just like mental retardation is not considered to be psychosis. So they are not going to classify borderline personalities. What you do with a borderline personality probably more than anything else is I, if I got a question about, not a borderline, but any personality disorder, I would probably use good therapeutic communication skills. Now, are they sick? Some of them are real sick little puppies. But they're not classically psychotic. Do you understand what I'm saying? And the only ones where I would really use the presentation of reality is with uh, the uh, the eight. Uh, mm. There are three personality. The, the personality disorders go in clusters. There's clusters, mm -hmm. three clusters. Right. Yeah. ABN. Okay, that's okay. Thank you. Uh, I kept thinking ABD, ABN, ABC. It's what ABN, the letters ABN are an abbreviation for what word? ABN. Abnormal. So I tell people the really abnormal personality disorders are the ABNs antisocial, borderline, and narcissistic. Those are the real sickies. 
the histrionics, the obsessive compulsives, the dissociative, the schizoid, they're no big deal. But your, your ABNs, your antisocials, your borderlines, and your narcissists, they're the real sick personality disorders. They're the ones that have real problems. And that's where I would probably treat them more like a functional. But for most personality disorders, I would just use good communication skills, basically. The reason why I like the uh, functional protocol for the ABNs is I end up setting what? Limits. And with an ABN, an antisocial, a borderline, and a narcissist, you've got to set limits. So that's why I like it with them, because I, I like to set those limits on those people. Oh, heaven. Oh, you mean the, the multi-axial assessment axis two, one, two, yeah, three, axis. four, five? That would not be essential knowledge for you to know. Um, that would be a question that would be hard. But axis one is the primary dis psych disease. Axis two is only really two things. Retard mental retardation and personality disorder. Really, that's about all they'll ever put in axis two. Three is medical conditions, not psych conditions, like diabetes, whatever. Four is psychosocial factors like unemployed, recently divorced, newly married, just had a baby, you know, those kinds of things. And five is a score. It's a greatest from zero to 100. It's a number, like 35, 52, and it's an estimation of how high you're functioning. 100 being perfect psychological functioning like me, you know, and then zero being <laughs> completely disorganized personality, person, you know what I mean? So it's a, one is your primary diagnosis, two is two things. One is your primary diagnosis, two is two things, retardation and personality. Three is medical, four is psychosocial, and five is the score. But that's, that's all I really want you to know. I haven't heard people reporting that those are on there. Okay, do you, hopefully has this changed the way you're gonna look at psych questions? So what's the first big task you have with a psych question? Psychotic or non-psychotic? If you know it's non-psychotic, use what? If it's psychotic, you have further work, you have to divide it into what? Three, four, the three, the first step for all three, the first step is what? Acknowledge feeling. The second step always starts with the letters RE. Reality, redirect, reassure. And now, have, isn't it true, now when you think back on psych questions, isn't it true that most psych questions, they'll, one, one answer will be reality, B will be redirection, C will be reassurance, and D will be ignoring. And you see the game they've been playing all this time? Okay. All right. Let's talk about three more psychotic symptoms and we'll take a break. Loosening of association. Loosening of association is the fancy way of saying your thoughts aren't wrapped too tight. In other words, your thoughts are all over the map, loosely associated. The first one is flight of ideas. This is when you go from thought to thought to thought to thought. You actually make phrases. You actually say phrases that are coherent. But the phrases are not tightly connected. In other words, each phrase by itself 
is coherent. But the phrases together are not coherent. Do you understand what I mean by that? A lot of ideas. Whereas word salad, they are sicker. They can't even make a phrase that's coherent. They just babble random words. So who's sicker, flight of ideas or word salad? Word salad. Word salad. Neologism is mean, means making up imaginary words. So they'll say, you're a Brinslebic, or you're a Shabazniak, or the Krenulaks are attacking. You know, they're making up all these new words. Robin Williams makes a fortune on humor based on loosening of association. He can do flight of ideas at the drop of a hat. He can, remember uh, Mork and Mindy, that dates me. Probably you guys don't even know what in the world I'm talking about. Unless you walk, ni watch Nick at night. But that's, he used to say Nanu, Nanu, and Shazbot. Those were never in the script. He just, came, he just neologistically did that on the spot. And they said, oh, that's cool. Let's add that in. You know, because he just, he just completely, did you ever see him do just stream of consciousness? He can just do it like Good Morning Vietnam, oh. all that flight of ideas stuff going on. So that's sort of it. He's also bipolar. That's why he makes like six movies in two years, then you don't see him for three. <laughs> Currently, you're not seeing him, but you will, he will come out in a year and a half with three movies to be released that he made in three days. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> narrowed self-concept. Narrowed self-concept is... When a psychotic, and that's key, psychotic. When a psychotic refuses to leave their room or change their clothes. If you've got a psychotic who will not leave the room and not change their clothes, and I would say it is a functional psychotic. The reason why they're doing it is why. Why is the functional psychotic refusing to change their clothes and refusing to leave their room? Why? Not so much control, although that could be an issue. Paranoia could be another explanation, but it's not the number one. Think of narrowed self-concept. What would that mean? Not worth it. What's that? Not worth it. That would be worth sense of, uh, that'd be low self-esteem. Yeah. This is narrowed self-concept. Your self-concept is how you define who you are. And how they define who they are is extremely narrow, meaning they define who they are based on what two things? Where they are and what they're wearing. So if you, the reason why they refuse to change their clothes and leave the room is they don't know who they are unless they are wearing those things in that room. And that's why they won't change it, because it it's terrifies them. So as a nurse, would you make a functional psychotic who is refusing to leave their room and change their clothes, would you make them do it? Why? If you made them do it, they would cease to know who they were. You would have a panic escalation. Somebody would get hurt. So you do not do that. So when do you, what do you tell them when they refuse to leave their room and change their clothes? What do you tell a functional psychotic? I see you are uncomfortable or upset. 
you do not have to change your clothes or leave the room until you feel comfortable or until you're ready. And it's a perfect world so they can stay there for 30 years if that's the case. Don't say, well, they can't stay. I mean, that won't work because what if, they're, what if it's three weeks and they still don't feel comfortable? They won't be able to stay in the hospital that long. Hey, it's a perfect world. Yes, they can stay that long. However, what if they say this? A Mrs. Jones has been depressed since her last child went to college three months ago. She has no energy to do the housework. She has lost her job because she didn't have the energy to get up and go to work. She says, I hate the way I feel. I am going to kill myself if things don't get better because this depression is ruining my life. Please help me. She is refusing to leave her room or eat her breakfast or do her daily hygiene care. What do you do? Okay, but see, now you're taking the four-step process for a psychotic. And this lady is a what? She's a non-psychotic. She's a non-psychotic. She just said depression. She had insight, right? So you don't have to read into it if it's major or not? If they don't say major, it isn't major. Okay. <coughs> they have to specify major. Okay. So what do you use? Good therapeutic communication skills. But, what do you say? I see you are Missing. depressed and feeling down, but what? What if a surgical patient is refusing to get out of bed after surgery? What do you do? Do you say it's okay? They can stay in bed all day? What do you tell them? Do you get them up and out? Maybe you'll feel better after you Mm, yeah, but that's a guarantee. Maybe you'll feel better because they could walk and feel worse and then now they don't trust you. You know what I mean? So what you would say is something like, it's time for you to shower, come with me, we will do... You're very, what, directive because she doesn't have the energy to do it. Do you, what's that? Tell them. Yeah, just like you would a post-op who won't get out of bed. Okay, now put your foot over the bed. Okay, now I'm going to raise you up. Now put your feet on the floor. Now, okay, now stand up. You know, you're very directive because they're not what? Psychotic. So what's my point? Why, what's similar about those two situations I gave you? And what's different? The one was psychotic, had the narrowed self-concept, or was refusing to leave his room and change his clothes. The other one was not psychotic, depressed, who was refusing to leave the room and change their clothes. One, I told you what? Do not push them. Do not make them. With the depressed, what do you do? You force them. You make them. If they don't make choices, you make choices for them. You understand, the only time you're allowed to make choices for patients is with depressed, psychomotorily retarded patients. You see? So, do you see the difference in, in the answers? Because your patient changed? Okay. Ideas of reference, that's when you think everybody's talking about you. For example, if two people were out there in the hall and they were talking, if I had ideas of reference, I'd think, what are they saying about me? Now, psychotics have really, really take this to the limit. I had one psychotic patient at Twin Valley 
where I took care of her. And uh, every evening when Katie Couric came on the news, she'd take her shoe off and throw it at the TV and say, call Katie all kinds of choice names and say, why are you lying about me? I was never in New Mexico. I could not have done that. What did she have? Ideas of <laughs> reference because she thought Katie Couric was telling stories about her when it had absolutely nothing to do with her. That's ideas of reference. Do you remember that I said about the guy, the people that pointed at the table and said those people are plotting to kill me? That's paranoia plus ideas of reference. And we dealt with it three different ways depending on who the patient was, correct? Okay, take a break, come back at 10 till and we'll do diabetes. Reflection studies. No, I never was. I've never been to.